morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. Senior Pastor here at Hillside, and today we arrive at week two of our Colossians 3 series. I'm just so glad you come today. I'm excited about what we have to talk about. And if you would, pull out your message notes. They're going to be of no help to you as uh, we move along this morning. A few months ago, a guy named John Chadwick, a 43-year-old Englishman, places a birdhouse in the willow tree of his backyard. And just, just for fun, he sticks a little tiny camera in it. And anyway, he is thrilled when just two hours later, two little bluebirds move into the house. And he lets the camera roll, then takes 15 hours of footage that he captured, turns it into a three-minute highlight video, and then he posts it on YouTube. Now, his expectation is that his nephews and nieces and maybe a friend here or there will, will check it out and enjoy sweet scenes of nest building and egg laying, but he is delighted and actually quite shocked when his first video gets 100 views. So he continues filming, produces another Big Brother Birdhouse video, and this one gets 500 views. He can't believe it. Well, not long after, he makes another one. This one gets 2,000 views. Then he makes another. This one gets 100,000 views. He makes another. It soars to 5 million views. And just last June, John Chadwick posts his, posts his final video again. This is just a video of birds in a birdhouse doing basic bird things. <laughs> and this video gets 45 million views, if you can believe that. Seems like people are very interested in what happens in birdhouses. And admittedly, the scenes were quite cute, especially the feeding scenes, though I think the caterpillars involved probably felt differently. But Colossians 3, the passage that we are unpacking over these next three weeks, is similarly about what happens in birdhouses. A birdhouse is our whimsical term during this season at Hillside for a gathering that we think is indispensable for experiencing all that God wants us to experience as his beloved children. We have a slogan this fall, a birdhouse for every bird. I think I'm the only one who's uttered it at this point. But I know it's catching on because this past week, Marilyn Tagarini gave me beautiful birdhouse mugs, which I love. But a birdhouse uh, is, again, our term for a small group. And what we want to have happen is we want every single hillsider to be nested in some kind of small group, some kind of group of people with whom they can do three really important things connecting as friends, exploring scripture, and seeking the Spirit's leading. And we want every hillsider to have that experience. And actually, thanks to you, it's going to be possible. A bunch of hillside leaders have stood up, and they said, I'll do it. I'll lead a group. I will, you could say, build the helipad 
for God's powerful presence and power to land. And I'm excited about the momentum we have with our groups because I really believe this, and I'll say it many more times in the years ahead. I think that a caring group is the very best gift we can give you at Hillside. It's the best thing that we can offer, and it's because in groups, we experience supercharged experiences of God's love and God's truth and God's guidance. Our groups launch in two weeks. It's not too late to sign up. You could actually reserve a spot after this service in the lobby. Well, again, Colossians 3 is all about what we do together as Christians, what we do in spiritual community, what we do in our bird houses. And these activities essentially break down into three categories. And last week, in his superb kickoff message, Stephen introduced the first main activity, which is putting on. And Paul says in verses 12 through 14 that the people who have been showered with all the spiritual blessings that go along with believing in Jesus, blessings like being filled in Him, that's Colossians 2.10, being made alive with Him, that's Colossians 2.13, being raised with Him, Colossians 2.12, being cleared of all charges by Him, that's Colossians 2.14, and then finally, one that I particularly love, being named as heir to an epic inheritance along with him. That's Colossians 3.14. Paul says that spiritual sweepstakes winning, winning people like that, people like us, receive the opportunity to begin putting on Jesus' distinct person, his particular qualities, or in Stephen's compelling language, to put on a brand new set of grace clothes. Well, putting on is just the first of two fundamental fashion statements, we could say, that we Christian apprentices routinely make. The other one is putting off, which we are exploring today. And these two main endeavors, putting on the Jesus-like uh, Jesus character and putting off something else, which we engage in side by side with our spiritual friends, they're sustained by other activities which we're going to explore next week in the final week when we look at verses 15 through 17. So last week, putting on. This week, putting off. Next week, the practices that propel them. So let me read the passage to you, and let me say, this is an important passage. And if you're somebody connected to Hillside with a with shepherding responsibilities. You look after other people. You're a coach in a one way, shape, or form to other hillsiders. Don't let this passage pass you by. This is really important for us to consider and to live into. So let me read it to you. It says this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So here's the plan. First time I'm going to walk us through this passage. It's fairly dense. I'm going to go through it pretty much verse by verse. Then I'm going to answer a question that I know this passage is going to raise in the minds of at least some of us. And lastly, I'm going to give a practical thought about how to live it out. So that's the plan. Let's plunge in. Verse 5 again. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Verb in Greek here is nekrao, which means just what it says. Put to death, or maybe deaden. And some versions soften it a bit. For instance, the NASB puts the verse, treat the parts of your earthly body as dead to. But that's actually a little weak. It doesn't really quite capture it. We've got a specific command here, and it's to dispatch the dispositions that go with our pre-Jesus lives. The habits that don't match our new identity and our new destiny as King Jesus' friends and servants. In the second half of verse 5, Paul lists the first of two sets of old self-habits, habits that characterized us before God came to us in Christ and breathe new spiritual life into our lungs through belief and baptism. And the first of these, verse 5 says, is sexual immorality, or porneia in the Greek. And porneia is actually not a vague term. It's quite plain what it means. It simply means any sexual activity outside the husband and wife relationship. And we know that because for Paul, as a Jew, Torah defined the distinct sexuality of God's distinct people. And Torah, specifically Leviticus 18, limits sexuality to husbands and wives. And this distinctive vision of sexuality, you can imagine, stood in stark contrast to the vision on offer by the Roman Empire, just as it does to that which is on offer today. And that ancient vision was brutal. And for one, it was sexist to its core. It revolved entirely around men. And it made no provision at all for the feelings, for the needs, for the pleasure of women. And it could also involve the abuse of children. And Paul says about that old way, he says, kill it off. Just get rid of it. Looking again at verse 5, the next old self-habit to be dispensed with, dispensed with is impurity. And in Ephesians 5, 3, Paul pairs impurity with porneia, the first word that we looked at. It's a broader category than porneia. It describes all sorts of kinds of corruption, but it seems to overlap with it. Next two old self-habits to be gotten rid of, passion and evil desire. They describe cravings. 
longings. And so we learned something interesting here. We learned that it's not just behavior, but it's what's underneath, desire as well. That's part of what we as Christians are called to cultivate, to bring under control so that we can experience peace. And then finally, covetousness. This is the state of always wanting more stuff. But again, the main point, these five features, Paul says, these parts of our pre-made-alive lives, these parts of our former zombie lives, you could say, they are to be dropped. They're to be placed in the can for good. For the moment, we're going to skip verses 6 and 7. We will get back to them. But now let's look at Paul's second set of five old self-habits that believers are to kick to the curb. First, starting with verse 8, anger. This is very interesting. Greek word here is organ. And it's a word that carries the sense of explosive emotional displays of temper. And as Christians, we walk a very fine line when it comes to anger. Ephesians 4.31, it permits anger, but like our verse here makes it clear, the anger that we show as people who are trying to learn the way of Jesus is not to have any of the, the furious, self-righteous, self-justifying flavor that often goes with it. And the next up, verse 8, is wrath. And the Greek word here is thumon, and it's similar to the first word, orge, in having the connotation of uncontrolled, explosive, volcanic anger or emotion. And it's interesting to consider that in Galatians 5.20, that same word is translated fits of anger. So what Paul seems to be saying is, as believers, we're to put away temper tantrums. Put them away. And then moving along, Third and fourth, old self-habits that need putting away. Malice and slander, they're a tandem. They're evil twins. And malice is just mean-spiritedness. It's ill will to others. And in particular, to others in the church, in the body of believers, since that's the context of the passage, that's the Colossians context. And slander describes abusive speech or insulting speech, speech that cuts other people down. And maybe even more than that, speech that makes our brothers and sisters feel shamed or small. We're, we're not to do that. We're to build each other up. Verse 10, Paul reminds us of the big picture. He says, putting off these old rags is part and parcel of being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. What he's saying is that this is our part, our part of the exciting restoration process that God has already begun in each of us, a process which is happening even before we become aware of it and even before we know enough to begin participating in it. And I find verse 10 to be very exciting really quite encouraging because it means that as we endeavor to put on and put off as imitators of Jesus, as people who are really trying to take his life and example seriously, you know what we're doing? We're moving, stepping onto a moving sidewalk. And it's one that God has already powered on. Finally, verse 11, which I'll read again. It says, here 
There's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Now what is Paul saying here? Jumps off the page. He's saying the opportunity to be renewed after the image of the Creator is for everyone. It's for every human being. Every human being is eligible for that prize package. And here's what I think that means for us here at Hillside. For us it means that our loving and through thick and thin, putting on and putting off community here on the hill is for everyone. Nobody is ineligible for it. And we should make sure that everybody knows that. And by the way, to live out the truth of verse 11, that this is for everyone, we're launching a new welcome team here at Hillside. It's one led by Katie Weibert, who will be assisted by Allison Seitz. And the purpose of this team is to communicate to every person from the second they drive onto our church campus that this place, this school, this academy for learning the way of Jesus so that we can bear light far and wide is for you. It's for everyone. For you regardless of your skin color. Regardless of your social location. Regardless of your kind of struggle. Regardless of your starting point. Everyone. You see, whereas the call of Colossians 3, 12 through 14 is to put off or put on our grace clothes, the call of this morning's passage is its wonder twin. It's to peel off those graceless ones, but always with an unwavering consciousness of who we are. We're new, we're forgiven completely, we're cleansed, and we are loved. Now, I know what at least one person is thinking at this point, and maybe more. And I think it might be this. Dan, do you have any idea of what my world is like right now? You know, fires raging, and Delta variants spiking, and brave young service people being blown up halfway around the world. And today we have to take on a passage like this. Why now? And you know why? Because honestly, I thought we all needed the emotional lift. I thought we all needed some feel-good stuff in this tough time, and I'm actually not kidding. I think this passage is a $100 Amazon gift card. It's a gift. Not long ago, one of my former college students, I worked as a college pastor in Davis for many years, sent me a, a Babylon Bee news story with this headline, and you have to understand that Babylon Bee is satire. But anyway, the headline read, Church stages intervention for pastor with addiction to Lord of the Rings sermon illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, although it stung, uh, I laughed because that's me, and I, I own it. Nevertheless, early in the first book, on their way to Riverdale, the four hobbits go into this pub called the Prancing Pony. 
pony. And they know that they are being stopped by evil. Sauron's forces on horseback. And sitting alone in this dark, kind of creepy pub is a hooded figure whom the hobbits don't know and who elicits deep dread in them. And because of how hard this dark-hooded stranger looks, the hobbits recoil and they keep their distance. Well, if you know the story, you know who this austere figure turns out to be. Turns out to be the noble Aragorn, the long-awaited king, and with Gandalf, the best friend that these hobbits will ever have. Friend, our passage today, Colossians 3, 5 through 11, it's the Aragorn of the book of Colossians. It's the Aragorn of the New Testament. It may seem like a bully in its moral urgency, in its specific call to take our lives and our character seriously, but you know what? It is our best friend. And it is our best friend, not in spite of its intrusiveness into some of the most personal parts of our lives, but because of it. Think about this. Think about this. I mean, could any of us take Christianity seriously if Christianity didn't take sexuality seriously? I mean, what if Christianity had no more to say about Christianity than, say, what a lot of contemporary moralists say about it? Maybe the kind of ethics that a lot of college students are hearing right now in freshman orientation at their colleges. That, that essentially anything goes, as long as two adults consent. And, and we should ask ourselves, does anybody, anybody at all, in the age of Me Too, and Olympic abuse scandals, and honestly church abuse scandals, does anyone believe that an ethic as thin as consent is sufficient for guiding human beings in this most consequential of human activities? I mean, think for a moment about the power of this part of life. I mean, over and above the power to create new people, sexuality is the power to bond two souls together to heal their deepest hurts, to build families, and then to build communities, the basic building block of which is a family. But at the same time, it's also the power to crush, and the power to sear the soul like nothing else. And when we hear stories of, say, athletes who have been sexually abused by trusted coaches, and we hear about the wreckage that resulted. I mean, can we really believe that sexuality has no transcendent significance? And if sexuality has no transcendent significance, if it really isn't connected to any kind of sacred order or some kind of immaterial, real thing in each one of us, how is it that it does such transcendent harm? But of course it does, over and over again when misused. And I think that any honest observer would need to acknowledge that human sexuality is a question that deserves a much more profound answer 
than the one that contemporary culture provides for? Well, ancient scripture gives us the answer. Ancient scripture respects sexuality and accounts for it in its depth and its mystery, its power to heal and actually its power to harm. And to draw on language from two series back, scripture illuminates sexuality. Perhaps the most puzzling, exciting, maddening, confusing, enriching neighborhood of the invisible city. Well, what scripture affirms about sexuality, what it pictures in complementary opposites coming together in a permanent embrace, Jesus and the church, and heaven and earth, it's beyond the scope of this message. However, this little bit of practical teaching that we get here about sexuality from 3.5, you know what it does? It grows out of the soil of that deep and wholesome and life-giving vision. And it's appropriate in light of the stunning picture that Scripture paints of human sexuality, its purpose and its power and its potential. And when you consider the profound significance of human sexuality, which really everybody acknowledges in one way or another, it actually makes really good sense that a loving God, a God who really cares about us, would call on his people to manage and cultivate, and yes, when necessary, deaden behavior and passions that just don't match with our new identity and our coming destiny. And you know what I discovered when I read verse 5 in the original language last week? It's this really interesting. The word translated passion is the Greek word pathos. Do you know how pathos is usually translated in the New Testament? Suffering. And therefore, when the God who designed us and handmade us and constructed us in love and then has begun a process to renew us, to our original shape in Jesus tells us in his word, his love letter, to deaden pathos. Do you know what he said? He said, put to death your suffering. I want something better for you. Come to me for a much richer and more fulfilling and happier and more wholesome way. What we just said about sexuality, we could say about nature, which is the other really big dinosaur in the passage. I mean, could any of us take Christianity seriously if it didn't take anger seriously? You know, most of what makes for a successful life is relationships. And when you come right down to it, the only determiner of a life well-lived is Relationships. No deep and enduring relationships, no good life, regardless of how many toys or experiences we collect along the way. The rub is that nothing ruptures relationships like anger. Anger is relational ammonium nitrate. Anger is a terrifying more powerful, more destructive than the 2,700 tons of ammonia nitrate that blew up Beirut last year. The destructive power of anger, how badly 
harness is something that I don't think contemporary culture understands at all. And I'll give you an example. I can think of a nationally known columnist, a very brilliant person, but who regularly writes variations of the theme that injustice justifies rage. And from a common sense perspective, let alone a biblical one, that is terribly naive. Rage turns us into the very thing that we are resisting. Rage keeps us from embracing the enemy and winning him the only way an enemy can ever be won, through love. Well, friends, it's because anger is so deadly and so destabilizing to our lives and relationships, so diminishing to our effectiveness across the board in life that Scripture calls us, invites us, those of us who have a new nature in Christ, to, to put it to death, to put it away. One more thought about why this passage, for me, is such good news. One of my favorites. The, the Aragorn of the New Testament. Here's what. It presupposes that those old self-habits, those dehumanizing ones, they can be put away. They can. After all, God would not call us to a quest that stands no chance of success. These old clothes, these life and relationship undermining inclinations, they can be body slammed. And that's because if we're in Christ, we're new. We have a new self. We've had our old body of flesh put up. We're a new creation. We have new capabilities. We have a brand new spiritual operating system. And nothing keeps us from being more and more conformed to Jesus. Christ's image, who himself is the image of God. Nothing keeps us from that. Leaves us with one question, and it's one deserving of expansive treatment, but in a few minutes I think I can give you just one thing that might be helpful. And of course the question is, how? How do we do this? How do we put to death what is earthly in us? Like Paul says in Colossians 3.5. How do we put off the old self-habits that we used to have before Christ drew near and connected us in love to him? How? Well, just like with putting on and putting off, it starts with a new mindset. It starts with simply bringing to mind who we already are as those who have been embraced and united to Jesus. We start there. And this is what distinguishes Christian transformation from every manner of self-help. They're actually not different in the sense that practical action is involved, thinking about our lives and making decisions. They're not different in the sense that the former self-help is active, while the latter, Jesus-like transformation, is passive now. Rather, they are different in mindset. We engage in Jesus' template transformation, seeking to become like him. And the way he acts, thinks, through putting on and putting off, always conscious of who we already are in him. And let me say it again, filled in him, made alive in him, raised with him, cleared of all charges by him, named to a new heaven and new earth inheritance with him. And we might even add nutriented by him. It's Colossians 2.19. That's where it begins. A new mindset. 
but it continues the practical common sense action. That is any common sense action that we can think of, which usually begins with careful thought about who we are and who Jesus is. You know, friends, our old self-habits, whatever they happen to be, whether they're porneia or orgain or thuman or anything else, you know what? They have predictable triggers which can be identified and diffused. And this is where our spiritual friends, our fellow birds, or since it's a Lord of the Rings kind of warning, the fellow eagles in our area can be so helpful. And we can share our struggles, we can talk, we can open up, and then they can help us plan. And with their prayer and their help and their encouragement, we can soar towards greater life and relationship enhancing and God-glorifying Jesus likeness. Let me close with a very quick story. A while back, art historian named Heather Dalton, who's living in Australia, is flipping through the pages of a book of paintings by the Renaissance artist Andrea Mantegna. And as she gazes upon one of the paintings, uh, an altarpiece now housed in the Louvre, she notices something kind of strange. At the top of the painting, above Mary and the infant Jesus, is a sulfur-crested cockatoo, an Australian bird. And she is certain of it because these beautiful birds are very, very distinct with their black beaks and their spectacular greenish-yellow crests. But the bizarre thing was, the sulfur-crested cockatoo does not live in Europe, is not native to Europe, and is not migratory. So she writes a paper asking how an Australian bird ended up in a 15th century Italian painting, when as far as anyone knew, there was no connection between those continents. See, no one had ever noticed this curiosity before, and no one had, had seen this unexpected cockatoo on the canvas. The scholars simply realized that the story of global migration, communities of people being connected in various ways, was a little more complicated than previously thought, because somehow this Australian bird got to Europe. What's the point? Fresh eyes made all the difference. And in this case, fresh Australian eyes could see what no one else could see. And friends, here's what I want to land with you. You're a masterpiece. You're a masterpiece. You're the beautiful thing that God made and adores and loves. You're a masterpiece in need of restoration, but you're a masterpiece nonetheless. Well, here's the thing. When we place the altarpieces of ourselves, our challenges, our struggles, before our friends in small group, it's amazing all of the exotic Australian birds that they can see. Solutions to various struggles, new ways forward in strange relationships, escape hatches in what looked to us like inescapable prisons. And on the flip side, they see our gifts and the wonderful things that we're capable of. They see our shining qualities. They see our untapped skills 
They see our unrealized potential. You could say that they see both kinds of birds. Now, friends, we need each other for so many reasons. But not least of all, we need each other to put on and to put off. Until the day, Scripture talks about all the time, when putting on and putting off will be passé. And an entirely new world, one for which we have been fitted, will be opened up to us forever. Let me pray. Dear Father, a deep dive like we've taken this day into the Colossians 3 section of your love letter to us. It confirms that as believers we are thousands of miles away from the spirituality that is on offer from so many other quarters. And that's because it's undeniable that you call us to comprehensive renewal. Renewal reaching to our deepest recesses. Renewal that matches your soul. And yet it's equally undeniable and stunning that you provide the path you provide the power, power that comes from organic connection to your own loving son, a connection made possible by his willing death on the cross for us. And thank you for the putting on and putting off that you will empower in us this week, and the life and the relationship-enhancing change those endeavors will work in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, for whom we are profoundly Thankful. Amen. Pass me on, gentle